you can be seated. I want to give you just a few announcements that really deal with our uh, church schedule for the holidays. And uh, just want you to make note that Tuesday, December 22nd, morning prayer will be dismissed. Also, Wednesday, December 23rd, service at midweek is dismissed. And then men's Saturday, December 26th, men's prayer is also dismissed. But Sunday, the 27th at 11 a.m., we will be right back here together and uh, just seeing what God has in store. We trust that you will enjoy a great time with your family throughout these holidays. So please keep all of those in mind. And as always, you can check out the church app or click on that events tab on the webpage, and uh, you'll be up to date. Before Pastor comes this evening, I just want to leave you with a with a quick thought. I've been down the rabbit hole uh, over the past couple of weeks in regards to looking at the life of the Apostle Paul in one of the um, devotions that I'm reading this year. It basically presents the Bible uh, chronologically, and it's been kind of neat to read through the book of Acts as events happened and then read through the other epistles um, and, and just to see that what events were tied to some of those writings. And uh, it, it became quickly apparent to me that Paul spent a significant more amount of time in prison than what I had originally thought, somewhere between four and five years that he spent in prison, which must have been extremely frustrating for someone like Paul. Paul was not uh, one to sit and rest. Paul was a doer three missionary trips um, in his life, and of course he established several churches, and I can't imagine how frustrating it must have been for Paul to have to sit in one spot that long and unable to go and do the things that he really wanted to do, and it, it probably seemed at some point like a huge waste to him and just lost time. So it kind of gives me a little bit different perspective whenever I read Philippians chapter 4. And Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content no matter what's going on, whether I'm fed or hungry, whether I have or whether I lack, I have found the secret of being content. And he spent four to five years in prison and wrote the books of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians that are some of the most comforting passages of Scripture that you will read. Paul made use of whatever time he had, and whether he was in chains or not, it didn't matter. Whether he could go where he wanted to or not, it didn't matter. He determined that in this season I am in, I am going to do what I can with what I have. What a lesson. What a lesson to all of us. God bless you this evening as pastor comes. piggyback on what brother Jason was just saying I understand that the book of Philippians contains the word joy more than any other epistle Paul writing that while he was in jail um, I don't know that I could have been so obedient to the inspiration of the Lord sitting in jail writing about joy he would have to at least allow me a little moment to express some frustration about something. But uh, he didn't do that. What an apostle. Great to see all of you tonight. 
and uh, thank you for being here on Wednesday night and um, come to hear Bible study. And uh, uh, along with Brother Jason, I welcome all of you joining us on live stream um, and so on. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, being a part of Grace Church tonight. Before we jump into our Bible study for tonight, uh, Michelle Grohn sent me a, an article uh, a week or so ago, and I wanted to share it with you. Um, I may even do this again Sunday. It's, it's very short. Um, when we were introduced to the COVID pandemic, it didn't take me long to realize that this was affecting people uh, mentally with their attitude uh, far more than it was physically. Uh, even if you had um, been a recipient of the virus, to put it that way, I do know it's affected a lot of people very negatively and, 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 and rightfully so. But I was immediately concerned about the attitude of our, of our world, of our nation, especially the church. And it reached the point where uh, I've, I've come to believe, I still believe it to some degree, um, that the church believer has adopted the mentality that God can heal anything on this planet but COVID. And uh, how many miracles have you heard of God healing anybody of COVID? I've heard of one. And that shows you where our faith is. But anyway, I've been very concerned about attitude, and now it's been documented, and I'll show you why. Now, I would like for everyone here tonight on campus to hear it, as well as those watching on live stream. The Catholic News Agency staff on December the 11th of this year reported the following. <clears throat> Americans who attend religious services weekly are the only demographic group appearing to show improved mental health in 2020. The only group, those that attend church on a regular basis. Despite the stresses of the coronavirus pandemic and other events, says a new survey put out by Gallup. This survey otherwise shows significant self-reported mental health declines among those previously in excellent in 2019, about 42% of those who reported attending religious services weekly told Gallup that their mental health was excellent. That was 42%. In 2020, 46% said the same, an increase of four percentage points. Only 35% of those who attend services nearly weekly or monthly reported excellent mental health, down 12 percentage points from the last year, and among those who attend seldom or never, 29% reported excellent mental health, and then they went down 13 percentage points. That's the beauty of keeping a focus on God, keeping a focus on faith. It keeps your attitude. Everybody say attitude. It keeps your attitude where it needs to be. Uh, and I'm really impressed with this, that there was a, a 4% increase by regular churchgoers, even in spite of all the events that have happened this year. So this is why 
Uh, I've taken some criticism, uh, preaching about it, uh, uh, not a lot, but I've taken some that says, Pastor, you just don't understand, and you're being kind of harsh and brash and, and what have you, and you need to be more compassionate. Um, mental health, bad attitude is a whole lot harder to recover from than most things on our planet. And uh, we need to be aware of that. You, you Folks, we have to keep our faith in God where it needs to be. You don't have to be stupid, and I've never uh, encouraged people to do that. I've said, uh, probably not a good reference, but I haven't been licking doorknobs either. I've tried to be careful this year, and, and I, I don't want to tempt God. I don't want to tempt fate, uh, what have you. I think it's, it's prudent to be uh, cognizant of what's going on around us, but um, I'm just not going to live under that umbrella of just continual, constant fear. I believe it's appointed unto man once to die, and when God's ready for you, he's going to take you out over one thing or another. I believe that. And uh, so just want to share that with you, and thank you, Michelle, for uh, sharing that. I want to read tonight from 1 John chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. And uh, if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn in your Bible. Uh, John said in his epistle, And these things write we unto you, that your joy, everybody say joy, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. For the past several Wednesday nights, I've talked to you about fellowship, and I'm teaching this material against the backdrop of, what, uh, eight or nine months of this quarantine and, and shutdown and all that, and the quarantine has been lifted somewhat, but there's still people that are living, mentally living in that same place. And uh, I want to talk to you tonight about true fellowship been on this track for the past several Wednesday nights and we'll continue tonight. God designed his church to have fellowship with one another. I preached a message, uh, I believe it was towards the end of the summer, about the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt. They, if they were never willing to give up their place in Goshen, they were never going to come out from under that fear of the Egyptians if they were never willing to come out from under that idea of quarantine and Goshen. Um, they had never inherited their promised land. And uh, God intended for his church to always move forward, to keep moving forward, to keep moving forward, to be visionary, to grow, and to conquer whatever comes in your way. You're... Uh, Support of that statement was just amazing just now. I believe it whether you do or not. I want to talk to you tonight about true fellowship. I want to open tonight with a very common 
uh, illustration. It, it's very simple, but there's so much truth in it. Uh, let me try to get you on a wavelength with this illustration right here. Imagine that you've come on hard times. You're homeless. You're penniless. You've been sleeping on the sidewalk. I have a hard time relating to that statement. I have a very difficult time relating to that statement. Your tattered clothes and an old dirty blanket are barely enough to keep you from freezing at night. Your meals consist of whatever you can find in dumpsters. You've lost all contact with family and friends. As you sit on the sidewalk, suddenly the presidential limousine pulls up to the curb. The president gets out and invites you to join him. You get in and you're whisked to the airport where Air Force One is waiting. You fly to Washington and are driven in the presidential motorcade to the White House where your own private room is ready and waiting on you. There are new clean clothes, all the food you can eat, all the servants to meet your every need or whim. But more than that, to your astonishment, the president treats you as his friend. He shares his heart with you and wants you to share your heart with him. At first, you're so dazzled with this incredible change of events that you're only aware of the president himself. But after a while, you realize that you're not there alone. There are many others who have experienced the exact same thing. You suddenly have this large family of brothers and sisters that truly care for you. And as you exchange your stories and talk about how the president helped each of you, your relationships with all these other people begin to deepen. This is probably to most of us an unbelievable fable, right? No, it's not. If you have come to know Jesus Christ, it is a true allegory. He found all of us in the gutter of sin and brought all of us to his heavenly palace to live with him and get to know him as a friend, as a savior, as a redeemer. And you've discovered brothers and sisters all over the world who've had the exact same experience as you have. You're accepted, you're accepted in a huge loving family where every member has a variation of the same story. I was lost in sin when Jesus found me and rescued me. It's the testimony that we all have in common. All of the family spends its time enjoying the bounty of the king and best of all, getting to know him better and better every single day. That is the glorious theme that John represents in our text. The joy, the joy of fellowship with God. That's pretty amazing to me. I received the Holy Ghost when I was 12. Would be, I suppose, about 51 years ago now. And I still enjoy fellowshipping with the presence and power of God. I hope all of you do. Not only that, as we enjoy quality, clean, moral, pure 
appropriate fellowship with one another. Great times. I can reminisce tonight for a long time over great, great times I've had in fellowship with the people of God in ministry and prior to ministry. The greatest joys in life come from loving relationships. The greatest joys in life come from loving relationships. And we all want such relationships. A credit card ad pictures a family gathered around the Thanksgiving table with the word priceless. And it's true. Times with family, times with friends is priceless. And yet, as we all know, relationships may also be the source of much grief and pain. We've all experienced disappointing relationships. Some of you here tonight, some of you watching live stream, have had abusive parents who you have come to the conclusion did not really love you. You may have had or still have an abusive mate. Perhaps your children have gone astray and are a source of true heartache. At the root of all such disappointments, at the root of all such disappointments is sin, which causes alienation from God and from one another. But in spite of the reality of such painful relationships, we all still know that true joy does not consist and the accumulation of wealth or even fame. True joy consists in the experience of true fellowship. Picture a man on his deathbed, all alone, except perhaps for his nurse. He says, bring me today's Wall Street Journal so that I can see how my investments are doing. Give me a phone so I can call my attorney to see how my lawsuit is going. This is what I would describe as a very poor man. But picture another man on his deathbed who doesn't own much, but he's surrounded by caring family members who are telling him how much they love him. He is a man who knows God and knows that soon the Savior who loves him and died for him will welcome him into heaven. There is a rich man. He is a man who enjoys fellowship with God. He's a man who enjoys fellowship with God and with others. This is what John is trying to tell us in his epistle when he refers to true fellowship. True fellowship with one another and with God is the basis of true joy. Fellowship actually means, and I've talked about this in the, in the prior Wednesday nights, but fellowship means sharing in common, sharing in common or sharing together. The idea that we who are so defiled by sin could have fellowship. We were so defiled by sin, but now we can share together and have fellowship not only with one another, but with a holy God. I, I don't know if you're hearing that like I'm trying to communicate it, but we're very fortunate people. We're very privileged people. We're very blessed people. 
We say these things often, and I think they should be said, but I also think we should realize the value when we say it, is there's nothing like being in a great relationship with God. One commentator said, True is that saying, he said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whosoever then really perceives what fellowship with God is, will be satisfied with it alone and will no more burn with desires for other things. He quotes the psalmist when he said, The Lord is my cup and my heritage. The lines have fallen for me on an excellent lot. In the same manner does Paul declare that all things were deemed by him as dung. He said that in Philippians 3. Everything around me is dung in comparison with Christ alone. Paul therefore has at length made a proficiency in the gospel who esteems himself happy in having communion with God and concurs in that alone. And thus he prefers it to the whole entire world around him. I'd rather have God than anything else. And so he is ready to relinquish all other things. This is why he could go to his martyrdom, saying there's a crown of righteousness waiting on me. He understood the value of his fellowship with God and with God's people. I want to be careful here tonight not to say the opposite of what I'm saying is is I think we oftentimes slough off fellowship with one another. We don't value it perhaps like we should. We're too quick to cancel. We're too quick to say, I can't make it. We're too quick to be more committed to commercial, secular, domestic things than we are fellowship with one another. I'll have you notice tonight the Bible places a premium on fellowship with God and with one another. And we should place a premium on that as well. When you want to study the subject based on John's writings, in First and Second, Third John, if you, want to, if you want to build a study on that, which is partially what I've done here tonight, it's interesting to me that when John approaches this word fellowship in his epistle, fellowship doesn't begin with God, he says. He begins fellowship with one another. That true fellowship with God is based on the quality of fellowship we have with one another. Why does John begin with our fellowship with one another before he proceeds to talking about fellowship with God? It's a legitimate question. I would have thought that the that first he would lay the foundation and then show the effect. My guess is that he begins with this word fellowship where most people began their fellowship. The thought of fellowship with the holy God of the universe sometimes is a bit more than we can fathom. But we do feel the love of others in the church. 
perhaps even before we come to know God personally. This is especially true of those who have suffered broken relationships all of their lives. They meet a Christian or they come to church and they immediately feel love and acceptance. There's people here tonight that have made that statement. I walked in the door. When I walked in the lobby, I felt loved here. I felt accepted here. There's people sitting here tonight have said that very thing. I believe John approaches this fellowship with one another first for that reason. Because oftentimes, a lot of us, most of us, are introduced to God's people even before we're really introduced to a relationship with God ourselves. I would like to say more relevant to Grace Church, I believe there's a lot of people that's come here that really didn't understand what a real relationship with God was really about. The reason I say that is because people have come here bitter and and broken and unforgiving and those kind of things, and we had to teach a path uh, to forgiveness and so on, and that's been done many, many times in the past. So oftentimes, people see the love of God manifested in God's people before they meet God himself, if you will. It's the first thing they notice. It's such a new experience that they're overwhelmed. Then they learn that the source of this love, the source of this love is actually not the people. It's in the people, but it's, it's not the people. It's not a natural thing that they're feeling here. It's not hypocrisy. It's not a mask. It's not fake. It's genuine. And it's because the people they've just met have come to know the love of God. They've come to know the love of God, and it emanates from them when they meet you at the door, when you walk in the church, whether they even know your name or not. What a great testimony, man. What a, what a, it, it just astounds me at the way this, this works. And it, it, it's, it's more than bothersome. It's, it's hurtful when people decline moments of fellowship with God and with God's people. I want you to note tonight with me four things about this fellowship with one another. Although unbelievers who come in among us should be able to sense this love, they cannot know true fellowship with other believers until they personally come to faith in Christ and begin to walk with him on a daily basis. They don't understand it. I've, 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 I've taught Bible studies for years in home Bible study and even from behind the pulpit. And I've made this statement many times and so have many others that you really don't understand what it's like to be in relationship with God until you are. You can listen to people testify. You can listen to people tell the story. You can listen to their testimony and all of that. And it sounds great, but you really don't understand it until you have experienced it yourself. Sister Murphy and I, when we evangelized once in a while, would sing together, and we used to sing a song that said, if, if you had known me before I knew him, then you would understand why I love him. Amen. So, in other words, knowing Christ personally and growing in that relationship 
is the basis for any true fellowship with others that know Christ. It is Christ himself that all of us tonight share in common. It's Christ himself that all of us share in common. True Christian fellowship is when we share together about the riches of Christ and the treasures of his word. Anything less is not genuine fellowship. I believe there's a content of fellowship even found when we worship together. There's a camaraderie there. There's a chemistry there. We're, we worship the same thing. We worship the same God. The same is true in prayer meetings. We fellowship with God and one another in prayer because we're praying to the same person. Is anybody hearing me tonight? True Christian fellowship is when we share together about the riches of Christ and the treasures of his word. Sometimes we chat with one another about the weather and sports and news. And while there's nothing wrong with talking about such things, it isn't necessarily what the Bible teaches as, uh, to be true fellowship. J. Vernon McGee once spoke at a Rotary Club meeting where a banner read, Food, Fun, Fellowship. We use that slogan around here sometimes. It's good food, fun, and fellowship. He said that the food was nothing to brag about. It was embalmed chicken and peas. That was an interesting way to describe chicken. I asked a kid one time, I said, do you eat dead chicken? And they go, ooh, no. I said, well, do you eat it alive? Um, I like dead chicken. I don't know about this embalm thing, but anyway. But then he went on to say that was the food. Then he said the fun was a few corny jokes. And then he said the fellowship consisted of one man patting the other on the back saying, Hi, Bill, how's business? Or how's the wife? He said that was their idea of fellowship. He goes on to say that which is called Christian fellowship often isn't much different. We get together for a potluck supper and talk about everything under the sun except that which we would, would provide true fellowship, namely that all of us share together in Christ. True Christian fellowship centers on and around fellowship with God. I hope y'all are so passionate about this tonight. The second thing I want to talk to you about, this is going to be a little challenging for a few moments, but it's needful. You'll notice if you study John's description and definition of fellowship and who, what, when, and where kind of thing, you'll notice that John did not advocate fellowship with heretics. Say, what is a heretic? A heretic is a person believing in or practicing religious heresy, a dissident, a nonconformist, a person holding an opinion at odds with what is generally accepted. It's a critic, a skeptic, a questioner. I do know that the apostolics in the book of Acts were often called heretics. In the turn of the 19th century, the apostolic movement, was the, the people participating in it was often called heretics. But tonight... I would like to use the phrase, 
more according to true biblical definition, it's people believing in or practicing religious heresy, a dissonant or a nonconformist, a person holding an opinion uh, with, at odds with what is generally accepted, a critic, a skeptic, a questioner. These people no doubt still claim to believe in Jesus, John assumed, but just not in the same way that the apostles understood things. I want you to understand that. It comes from the book of John. He talked about people who believed in Jesus, but not the same way as the apostles understood things. So even though John emphasizes love, John emphasizes love. He was the loving disciple. He knew what love was. He knew what the love of God was. He knew what love and one another was. But he never encouraged love and fellowship with people who did not believe the same thing. It's quite the opposite. He makes it clear that we should not even welcome them with a warm greeting. takes a very hard stance. To do so would be to participate in their motives and their agendas. I want to submit to you tonight that there's a lot of sloppy thinking in Christian circles about the subject of unity in Christ. Clearly, it is an important topic. I believe that doctrine is a very important topic. Our faith is built upon the apostles and prophets. They're built on Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And we don't deviate from that to the right hand nor to the left. So clearly, it's an important topic. Jesus prayed that his followers would be one so that the world would know that the Father had sent him to be their Redeemer. They needed to agree on the identity of who Jesus was. That's very apostolic to me. He was God manifested in the flesh. Not a second person in a Godhead trinity. Amen? Those trying to promote unity often say, the world will know that we follow Jesus by our love, not by our doctrine. So they say, let's come together in areas where we agree and set aside the matters where we disagree. I have said, I want to stop here for a moment and say in passing, that I have had friends that from my perspective was right of center. I've had friends that were left of center. I've had friends older than me and younger than me. And I would love to, and I would enjoy listening to them talk. I love to hear, I enjoyed their, their perspective. I wanted to hear and try to understand where they were coming from. But they never guided me in my faith and our doctrine. I've had several battles with UPC preachers and former UPC preachers over such things as, do you really believe that people have to have the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues to go to heaven? Do you really believe the essentiality of water baptism, not in the name of Jesus Christ, but water baptism at all? I've gone round and round with several of our preachers along that line, but once again, 
They did not cause me to deviate from what I believe to be my bedrock foundation in my heart, and that is that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I will say tonight that I have had to dismiss some from our congregation on this point and a few other points and have lived to regret not dismissing others when they only come in to cause division and confusion. I dare to say that John would have been aghast at what is going on in our world and our country today when it comes to apostolics and especially those who are walking away from it. True Christian unity True Christian unity must be based on true fellowship with God, which must be based on true apostolic doctrine. In Ephesians 4, Paul mentions two kinds of unity, and it's interesting. Maybe a good study that you may want to look into. But Paul mentions two kinds of unity. He says, in verse 3, that we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Everybody say the unity of the Spirit. That we should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As far as I'm concerned, in a great way, in a profound way, the Spirit of unity or the unity of the Spirit already exists. It must be preserved, he said. But it goes on to say that the pastors, teachers are to equip the saints until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I want to say to us tonight, we should appreciate the revelation of God and Christ that we have received from God and from the Word of God. Paul is saying that there has to be that we are to equip the saints to come to attain to a unity of the faith. Not of faith, but of the faith, the thing we believe, the doctrine we believe, why we believe it. Included with that is the knowledge of the Son of God to know that in the beginning was the Word. And it goes on to say the same writer and the gospel of John and the word was made flesh. Obviously, the unity of faith does not yet exist. We attain to it. We grow to it. We come to it. As we grow to know Jesus Christ, based on what the word of God says about him. Better through the study and teaching of the word. When you know Christ, you experience Genuine unity and fellowship, not only with God, but with also fellow believers. And everybody said amen. It's interesting to me, and I commented about this last Wednesday night. It doesn't matter that there were significant differences between all of us in background, personality, social status, and so on when we came to God. But when we come to the foot of the cross, we're all equal. 
We're all human and we all stand there in need of him. And once you're born again, you become a part of a family, a unique family, a God-built family, a God-designed family, a family that oftentimes is closer to one another than their own natural family. This is the fellowship we enjoy and the one common denominator we have is that we've all been redeemed by the amazing, powerful, glorious blood of Jesus Christ. Everybody clap your hands here tonight, if you will. Among the apostles, Simon the Zealot was from a radical political group. This is interesting to me. He was from a very radical political group whose mission was killing tax collectors. How would you feel if you were Matthew and that guy came to your church? But see, this is what God does to people. Jesus brought them together and said, forget about your political and social agenda and love one another. Paul emphasizes that in the church, there are no distinctions between slaves and free men or Jews and Gentiles, but Christ is all and in all. He is all and he's in all. He is all and he is our all. So true Christian unity at the basic level consists in mutually knowing Christ through the gospel. Such unity deepens as we grow to know him better through his word. The third thing, and now I've got to hurry. John was not advocating joining with Herod heretics in a crusade to try to win Ephesus for Christ. Far from it. We should not join together in evangelistic efforts with churches or organizations that blur the gospel. We're very careful not to do that. I've been approached by more than one person over just recent months and even the past several years that we need to join up with. I've met with people and have been encouraged to join up with them, but I can't do that because there's too many and too drastic differences in the gospel, even though what they're doing is very commendable and very charitable. Paul commended the Philippians for their participation, for their fellowship in the gospel with him. A few verses later, he exhorts them in Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. That's literally soul, one soul striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you want to experience true fellowship with other believers, join together in laboring for the gospel. And this is true. Yes, there's increased potential for disagreements and conflict. Paul and Barnabas split up after their differences and how to go about their mission. And John Mark Cain got involved in it. But there's also the potential for deeper fellowship. And I've often found, and it's been my experience, that people that I can go eye to eye with, toe to toe, 
have a knockdown drag out here and there and still stay friends, you become good friends, man. Excellent friends. This is why it bothers me and it hurts me so bad when church people have a spat with one another and the family leaves and goes somewhere else. You should stay and tough that out and learn how to manifest Jesus in your spirit. If I left over everybody that offended me, I'd have left 5,000 times. If that's possible. You stay and you tough it out. Uh, I'm not going to finish tonight. Let me conclude on this point. Fourth point and then we have some more. I'll teach in the next couple of weeks. John said, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I love the way he said that, because he is not making a distinction in some Trinitarian Godhead. What he is doing is elevating Jesus Christ to the place of deity. They knew him. The people around John knew him as a man, a prophet. Jesus asked them one time, who do you say that I am? They named all these men. You're like him, you're like him, you're like him. But John understood that the Jesus that he was in communion and fellowship with was not just a man and not just a prophet. He was God manifest in the flesh. So as we see and study, one of John's main themes in all three epistles is believing in the truth about Jesus Christ. He used truth five times in one epistle, and he used truth four times in another epistle. John believed doctrine, he believed in fellowship, and he believed in fellowship based on truth. And I want, I'm asking Grace Church to do the same. We've used as an illustration before, but it fits here tonight. We teach people, we teach our young people to, to date in the church. Uh, I think the Bible is very clear about being unequally yoked with unbelievers. It don't just apply to marriage, but I think that's one of the greatest things it can apply to. But I've seen it happen through the years where the guy goes after the girl and the girl goes after the guy. One's in church, the other one's not. And they always say, well, I'll, I'll convert them, I'll convert them, and I'll convert them. I've seen it more times than not where the one not in church pulls the person in church out of church. I've seen that happen all of my life. I see it happen with married couples. They start befriending people who are not in church or they befriend people who go to another church because we're all Christians, but pretty soon the people who were apostolics are now converting over to something else and they're believing something else. I've seen it all of my life. More recently, probably in the past 10 plus years, but I've seen it all of my life. Folks, it is imperative. It is imperative for you to know what you believe and you stand on that, period. I want to go as far as to say once you've been exposed to truth and once you've experienced a revelation of doctrine, of holiness, for you to go against that and change that, I'm not sure you're worthy of rapture when you do that. Going way out on a limb to say that, but I believe it. I don't know how you can get up and confess that Jesus is God, 
Acts 2.38, one God and all that stuff, and then say, no, that's not the case anymore, I'm going to believe something else, and still feel like everything is okay. It's imperative that we know what we believe, but it's also imperative that we value our fellowship with one another. So when you're invited to fellowship with church people, don't be too quick to decline. Don't be too quick to say, I don't have time. The Bible puts a premium on true fellowship. I want to say again, and then I'm done. But over the past several weeks, we've had moments of just amazing fellowship with great, great people. We did Saturday at our Overcomers event. It worked out that our praise team joined us. They had all of Brother Henry's uh, turkey fried chicken, whatever you call that. He fried three chickens like you do a turkey, and it, it just disappeared like a pizza at a Weight Watchers convention. It just, it just went away. Uh, I, I, I got a little extra helping, discerning the spirit of those who had come in, and it was a good thing. <clears throat> Somebody told me they went back for seconds, and there was nothing but bones. Uh, Sister Murphy said it looked like somebody had just picked up the bones and picked everything off of it. It was just unbelievable. But it was an amazing, amazing time of fellowship. And then over it, several folks have had things at their home. And I don't decline those things. If we can possibly be there, unless it's an emergency or, or something tragic or whatever, we're going to be there because I love being with God's people. I enjoy having lunch with people. enjoy having dinner with people. We had dinner with somebody the other night. We love it. We enjoy it. It's a great time together. And I don't decline. I'm going to ask you not to be so quick to decline when God's people invite you to fellowship with them. Consider what we share in common. Consider how much it costs to make that happen. Jesus went to Calvary so we could have this called the church. Everybody say amen. Thank the Lord. God bless you. Um, went a little bit longer than I wanted to, but it is what it is. But why don't you get up and walk around and fellowship with somebody before you leave. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday. Yes, sir.